Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Safia Fredericks to the show. Safia is a professional actor and singer. Born in Berkeley, California, Safia moved to New York City after graduating from the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. She has since relocated to Los Angeles and performs in theater all over the West Coast, in addition to her screen work. Recently, she completed a run as a company member at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and she received the Bay Area Theater Critics Circle Award for Best Featured Actress for her work in Black Odyssey at Cal Shakes. I met Safia while doing a staged reading of Arsenic and Old Lace at Antias Theater Company in Glendale, California. Like our characters in the play, we hit it off, and Safia was not only kind enough to listen to my podcast after I shamelessly promoted it to her, but it turned out she actually liked it. I'm honored that I get to repay her kindness by putting her in the hot seat right now. Welcome to the show, Safia. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nick. <laughs> oh, man. It's a delight to have you here. I am going to um, do another thing that's shameless. You wrote such a lovely review about my show, and it was, it was one of these things where I actually helped me learn about it. It was really meaningful that you wrote it. An audible balm for the soul is the thing I remember. I was like, damn it. It's really nice. <laughs> There's no way I'm going to let this make the edit now that I've totally glorified myself. But I just wanted to tell you that that was really, really nice. I love that you said that because I feel like there are a lot of people doing podcasts and sometimes people ask you to listen to something or support their show or support their whatever. And anytime that work is actually good, I get incredibly excited. So thank you for liking my reviews so much. You're very sweet. Well, thank yeah. you for being on the show. You and I don't know each other very well, but you have a lot of interesting stuff in your life that I look forward to hearing about. I wanted to just ask you about the sing down on Instagram and what that means to you and what the inspiration for that was. Yeah, um, I'm so glad you asked about that, actually. So when lockdown first happened, like a lot of people in our industry, I, you know, lost a job, um, lost a few jobs. And I didn't really know what to do. And a lot of, you know, the advice was, now's your time to start your YouTube channel or now's the time to like make your movie. And I was like, I don't know what to do right now, but it has to be something that feels organic, right? Like, I think um, having done this for as long as I have, like you realize like, what is the thing that I just do that I would do anyway if no one was watching or no one was paying me? Mm -hmm. And knowing how much I love music and know how much I love to sing, I started by just saying, like, I'm going to go live on Instagram and I'm just going to, like, pick an artist and I'm just going to sing songs from that artist. Like, this is going to be this little fun thing that I do for myself. Five people are watching. Who cares? Like, it doesn't matter. This isn't about a, a jumping off point for something. Um, it's about kind of my own fulfillment, my own joy, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it started in that way. And then when... George Floyd was murdered and there were protests happening all over the country and the world. I was like, well, should I even still do this? Is this, this feels like um, not a good time or not the right spirit. And so I decided to, I like to puzzle. So I was puzzling. <laughs> well, not to derail a very 
an important emotional and uh, artistic sure. experience. But I read multiple bios of yours, and you often talk about how much you like to do 500-piece puzzles. <laughs> so you using the word I like to puzzle is very literal. You like doing puzzles. <laughs> you I, like I puzzling. I do. I do, man. I do. Now, it's, it's, a zen, it's a zen art, and especially now, it's like this thing you can do that's not a game on your phone. It's not the TV. It's like something you can do while listening to some music or something like that. So... Thanks for calling me out, Nick. Uh, hey, I just, it was too, it was like, it was the low-hanging fruit, man. You used the word puzzle. Okay, go on, go on. So, um, no, I was, and I decided to listen to Nina Simone, mm-hmm. and I realized, like, how much her music and so many of the songs that she wrote spoke to the moment that we were in. And so I was like, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to honor this artist and also honor the time that we're in, and I'm going to connect those dots. And then it really was kind of the perfect marriage, right? The second time I was like, there are so many protest songs. There are so many songs about revolution and about these movements. And so it's taken on a new meaning, a whole new purpose almost as well. And it gives me a space to contribute in the way that is in alignment with myself and also with my ideals and also with what is happening on the ground floor. Yeah, I really relate to that. Uh, I think that's really beautiful and it is beautiful to watch. And you, you do have just on a very base level, you have a lovely voice and there's something about really starting to understand doing something for the love of it, doing something because as you said, you would just be doing it anyway. That tends to, once you start doing it, it tends to be a vessel that can hold a lot of other things. And it's beautiful that you found that for yourself. Frankly, I feel the same way about these conversations. I'm getting to have conversations that that can help me with this moment, hold what I'm feeling and what others are feeling uh, in ways that I would not be able to seek out in the way that I'm able to seek them out now. And so, you know, thank you uh, for being here with me to share what you're, how you're talking and living with this moment. What did you have for breakfast this morning, Sophia? I had buckwheat pancakes. Ooh. And a cup of decaf coffee. You wake up with decaf, do you? You don't need that much I, caffeine? <laughs> well, I can't the, be the only person in your life that razzes you about this. No, of course, because people are like, what's the point? What's the point? <laughs> but there is but the a little is, bit have, of coffee. There's a trace amount of caffeine, I mean. There is. There's, it's still less than dark chocolate, I think, though. Oh, really? Um, wow, yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, I, I love the taste of coffee. Like, I, I like the taste genuinely, but sometimes the taste and the smell is what, like, wakes me up. And it's mm. not really the caffeine. And especially now, because, you know, unlike you, I don't have a three-year-old. I don't have, like, you know, a, a job right now. So I don't actually have to be awake and alert for anything. Um. <laughs> right. Well, you know, God, that sounds lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, I was just like, wow, a meditative morning where you don't have to slam yourself into the day. (laughs) Don't, really don't. That sounds nice. That part sounds nice. It's pretty good, not going to lie. Okay, (laughs) let's get into it. Um, How and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? I, I don't think I remember not knowing God or knowing the concept of God. Probably first through prayers. We always prayed before we ate as a family. Very simple prayer. My mother, she was raised by her grandparents and her grandfather had a church. He was a pastor. 
she went to church, you know, seven days a week. So when she became an adult and had kids, her thing was, I will introduce you to the idea of church, but I am not going. (laughs) Mm. And because I'm the youngest of four, the older siblings wanted to go. They would just kind of drag me along. And it was very much like, you know, you can go if you want. You don't have to go if you don't feel like it. Like this is totally up to you. But the things that kind of kept me wanting to go was really music, was really, you know, the choir. It was really, you know, I want to be in the youth choir. I want to be the young adult choir. Like that was what was fun for me for a while, you know, until it wasn't anymore. (laughs) Mm. How long did you actually, you know, go, do you think? I don't know. It was really, it was so, it's so crazy, Nick, because it was really an on and off thing. It's like, do I feel like going to church this Sunday or do I not? If it was youth Sunday or if I was singing that Sunday, then I'm going. If I'm not, then I'm not. My mom would always go when, you know, when one of us had a solo or my brother played in the, um, in the band, you know, she would go for those things. Right. But she kind of refused to be, as she called it, like an Eastern Christmas type of Christian. Like she was like, I'm not going to be someone who shows up on the holidays. Like if I don't go all the time, I'm not going. So I kind of, I think I had the same attitude. It was just like, sometimes I wanted to go. Sometimes, you know, I had certain friends there or whatnot. So I'd want to go, but I didn't take it super seriously. I think from a young age, I kind of saw a lot of it as BS because I was also, mind you, in Catholic school. So (laughs) okay, yeah, I, I just, I always had questions. And, you know, one of the things I love about my mom and just how she taught me was that it was okay to ask questions. It was okay to be curious. It was okay to think that something didn't make sense or was wrong. I remember distinctly this one incident being in vacation Bible school, which is like Bible school during the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in most black churches, they, you know, say anyone who has accepted Christ into their heart, can they come forward? You know, anyone who wants to join the church, come forward. And this teacher was like, anyone who hasn't accepted Christ into their heart, come forward. And we're like five, six, you know, like what are, what is she talking about? Right. right. So I remember like going up cause I was like, oh, I think this is like a ceremony that I haven't done yet. So hmm. maybe I need to go up. And so I did. And then she said, they have been living with the devil and we're going to bring these children into the light. And I was like, what? Like, wow. I was just like so confused. I was like, doesn't make sense. That can't be true. It can't be true that I'm this young and I've been living with the devil because I didn't, I'm a child, you know? Did any of your siblings really latch on to that religion or another? They did. I have an older sister who, even when she was younger, you know, I went to church mostly with her. She was super into it. Then she wasn't for a while, but now as an adult, she is back in church. And my other older sister like had a really really rough and negative time um she also went to christian school which was also kind of hard so the whole religion thing is very tainted for that sibling for mm. sure what are the next major life events be they either spiritually related or kind of in mm. the, just your personal biography to where you might yeah. be running into another threshold I would say that a lot of my spiritual touchstones are through questions asked or concepts 
introduced to me that I kind of immediately went, that sounds right. That doesn't sound right. You know, it was like kind of this calling together of various things, right? So I remember at some age, definitely as a kid, hearing about reincarnation and going, oh, that, that sounds right. Like that mm. sounds pretty accurate. Some folks know more than others in a way that's not like they learned anything. They're just wise. They're just wizened. And then in learning about world religions, I remember feeling like it was such an amazing class because they really connected the similarities between all the religions, you know, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, Judaism. And I really was like, oh, this makes sense to me. It makes sense to me that these things are more connected than they are separate. I mean, I I prayed. I mostly prayed for things that I wanted. I kind of don't think I got it really. (laughs) But I always was a very spiritual person. I kind of knew I'm more spiritual than I am religious. I knew that for a very long time. I've just realized after a while, like, doctrine's not something I'm really super interested in. Like, I don't want to learn your rules and your thing. <laughs> like, I just am not into it. I love to respect them, though. Like, right? So if I go into someone's house where they honor this thing, I love to be like, oh, awesome. Let's, let's totally honor what you honor. I love that mm. principle. But it's just not really, for me, the religion thing. Yeah, that resonates with me, too. I really love yeah. that. I, it's a bit of the actor's spirit. Totally. The desire to to kind of find the the resonance, the spiritual resonance in a new time in a new place, um, ah. and so I, I get that it's not localized only to actors, but I think actors have a particular bent towards that sort of thing. I totally agree. I think that there's such a, you know, when you're an actor, you really are wearing a different shell for a while in that character, and so. There's something spiritually that speaks to, I think, a lot of us where it's like, no, I I kind of need a little bit of everything because it keeps me more malleable. It keeps me with a little less rigidity, at least for myself. And also what's interesting about, about these things is that whatever you had, I think, in the formative years of your childhood, those things feel like the best to you. Like they feel soul touching in a way. And so there's a way in which, like, for myself, that is connected to music. So anytime I've tried something else, I've definitely tried to go to a Unitarian church. I've definitely tried to go to, like, other types of things. And I'm always like, if there was a gospel choir, I'd totally be down. I always need a gospel choir. It's like I want the more Eastern, more holistic principles and and things, but I also want a gospel choir. (laughs) And those Mm. two things, like, you know, they might invite, you know, one once a month. You know, I realize that the, that's the thing, though, that resonates with me. That's the thing that kind of is with me through the core. So this is me through some of college. I was, you know, a speaker and like a, going to Catholic school and really enjoying school. And, you know, I had a really great high school experience and also not feeling like I needed to be super connected to religions. So I felt pretty free. And so then in college, I um, actually, no, I don't think I knew that I was just, that I was way more spiritual than religious at that point. I thought that, I thought that I just hadn't found the right one. I think that's what I thought. Okay. Now that I'm talking about it out loud. And I 
my mom passed away my the beginning of my senior year of college mm. and when that happened you know when she was sick it was a very short illness it was like she had this some serious illness then it was cancer and then she was gone so wow. when she first was sick and we found out it was cancer everyone got really religious and this was kind of my first spiritual experience i'd say like what happened was I remember the last conversation I had with her on the phone. I was talking to her and we were just catching up and she's like, yeah, I'm sick. I don't know. There's a... And I remember hanging up the phone and just bawling. Like I was, I was crying so hard and I didn't know why. And it was inexplicable to me. And I was like, I don't know why I'm, crying right now um but I just I felt like I knew something that I didn't want to know and I'm sorry during this call does she know that she has cancer you said it's her last it's her your last conversation with her no this no she didn't know she didn't know that she had cancer what happened was and what kind of happens often is that when things progress you get intubated and then the person can no longer speak so um, that's essentially what happened. This is why that ended up being our last call. Oh, um, my heart broke on that realization. Yeah. So you're yeah. saying the last time that you actually got to hear your mother's voice and speak to her, she mm -hmm. hadn't even been diagnosed. It was so far progressed that yeah. she just kind of was, she thought it was a bad whatever illness she thought it was. And then this happens, then she goes into the hospital. By the time she's in there, it's like so serious that she's intubated and you get to see her again, but you don't ever get to actually speak to her again. Absolutely. That's exactly wow. what happened. Wow. Wow, Sophia. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, um, you know, having that experience of talking to her and crying was jarring but wow. I also was holding on to faith in a sense, holding on to my family's belief that it was fine and, you know, we're going to pray and go to church and all of these things. And, and it was, it was a big juxtaposition between what we were trying to believe and what actually was happening. And I remember going to church with one of my sisters and a pastor said, you know, I'm, I'm praying for you guys. I'm praying that you guys have peace, you know, with whatever happens. And we were very upset because, we, you know, she was like, why aren't you praying for her to get better? Why aren't you praying for her to get well? And that's because he knew that, you know, this ultimately was in God's hands. This ultimately wasn't something that, you know, we can control. And... I had, I'm going to tell a story, if that's okay. Of course. Um, that I never talk about. But when I went to see my mother for the first time, it was you know, incredibly painful. Um, I just cried, you know. And then I remember asking her, you know, because she was up, but, you know, was intubated so she couldn't talk. And I remember asking her, like, are you going to get, you're going to get better. Right. And she shook her head. You know, she was like, no, wow. 
And the first, the first time I had like an actual, I mean, the word is, the word is psychic, like an actual like visual experience of something was, I was, I spent the night in her room and I fell asleep in the chair and I very distinctly saw her get up and walk out of the room and she had this huge smile on her face and I was like what are you doing what are you doing and she was like oh it's so like she was just so happy and she was beaming and I like woke up with a like a start I was like so like what is happening and she was lying there and I was like what was that like, I don't understand what that was and she passed away the next morning wow um yeah so that's that story. Wow, Safia. Wow. Were you the yeah. only one there? I was, yeah. Yeah. I was um in the not not when she passed away. Um my siblings were there. Um and that happened, but that night when I saw that I was the only one in the room because we were taking turns, you know, sleeping by her side essentially. Um and so that was like my turn to sleep in the hospital next to her. Um, and yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's powerful. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that is quite the place to get to end the first segment. So I love what'd you say? I said, I'd love to do that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we'll be back in just a minute. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully, Discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. All right, everybody, we're back with Safia, and she had just finished telling this really beautiful and it's a hopeful story and it's a sad story because your mother is smiling in the story, but it's also... I can only imagine the pain of that, but I just want you to know that I appreciate you sharing. And um, where do you want to go from here? What does that story mean to you? And where do you want to go? Well, the reason why I tell it is because if we're talking about my journey with spirituality and my journey with faith, in all honesty, it begins there in a way. Everything else was like the introduction, really. And that's really the beginning because... Hmm. You know, when you when you lose a parent at a young age or any age, but I think especially when you're younger, 
um, there is a, and a mother, it, it throws you into waters that not a lot of people your age have been in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're really out there by yourself and clinging on to kind of whatever you can cling to. And because of that, the journey that follows is just bananas. You know, it, it, it's so, it, it has destruction in it. It has like so many things. I mean, for myself, you know, I, I think that there was something in me that said, there is no way that a mother leaves her children and just is like, I'm out. I'm in the ground. Good luck. Like, there was something in me that was like, there's no way my mom just left me here to figure the rest of the shit out. Like, I can't, you know, I need you. And so for a while after that, my faith, so to speak, but not really faith, was just like her. It was just like, I don't believe in anything else, but I believe that my mother loved me and loves me and is with me, you know, that's, that, that's all I know. Yeah. So you're yeah. talking to her, you know, you're, you're in the car and you're talking to her, you're at home and you're like, mom, what's up? Like, help me with this stuff like that. A little, I mean, a little, like, I think, I think it, I, it would, it would be, it wouldn't be wise to paint it that way. It was way more destructive than that. Like I drank a lot, you know, and I hadn't really drunk before. Mm. I ate, you know, I, I lost tons of weight because I would eat just like nothing and then like eat ice cream and then sleep and, you know, and again, when you're, when you're young and you're going through a loss like that and you're depressed, there's really not, none of your peers know what you're going through and none of your peers are equipped to help you. And so I tried to go to the counseling office. I just would go in there and just cry. And I was just like, is this helping? I don't know. <laughs> um, so it was really kind of a dark and icky time. And, you know, the other thing I knew was that I was like, God really is off the table. Like the whole, the whole God thing, like I'm not in it. Like I was really clear about that <laughs> for a long time. And essentially you know, to your point, it's like, it would be like, you know, I had her picture on an altar and, and, you know, the black community and the Latino communities, like, like ancestors are a part of our spirituality. It's like not really a religion. It's just like a part of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Talk about ancestors, about people who came before us. Like we honor them. We have altars, things like that. And I didn't really grow up like that, but it's really different when an ancestor is like somebody, you know, like your mom, like that's not, it doesn't feel like, Oh, an ancestor. Well, this grandmother, I never knew. It's like, no, this is, this is your mom. And so, you know, I've always had an altar with, you know, various people who passed away now, but, um, put her photo on there first. And I would just talk. It was just like some, I would just sit down and just talk and just be like, I, but a lot of crying and why and, I don't get it and I'm not ready and this is happening and these siblings are fighting and all of these things. So yeah, it was really kind of torturous for a while. How many years? 
I'd say like hmm, five. Man, it's a Four long, five. It's a long time. Yeah, a long time. But what happened was, what happened was, I, I actually don't know when it changed, but I know that it changed at some point. I know that at some point, I realized that I'm sad because this person left me. But I guess this goes back to like what I saw in the hospital. It's like, but she was fine. Like mm. she was happy to go. And so my sadness is mine. It's, it's actually not about her. It's about her, but it's, it's also my reaction to it. So I can actually choose to see it differently. I can choose to have a different experience right now. I can choose to, I can choose to be more present in what is actually happening and not continue to use this quote unquote wrong as a reason for me to be destructive or a reason for me to not care about myself. Yeah. And so how do you, how does that start manifesting in your life? Like how do you start yeah. putting it back together in a way that feels healthier? Yeah. So I, I realized that I wanted a, a different definition of God that I was actually working off of a definition that I never really believed in, but I was just kind of trained into. So there was like a rebuilding of what that definition is and what that relationship is. And also I made a new year's resolution to meditate twice a day because I would meditate kind of sometimes, but whatever, but I didn't do it consistently. And making that resolution was totally transformative for me because it was a quiet time twice a day with myself. And it really changed things. I started reading, and I had already done this, you know, during this time, I think, because a lot of people, when they lose folks, they start reading various texts and really getting into certain things. And I remember my sister gave us all the four agreements, which is a great book. That was very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, but I also started reading a lot of Eckhart Tolle mm -hmm. and, I started to just expand my, what was already expanded. Like, it's like, it's interesting. It's all these things I kind of already believed in and knew. And so that was really helpful. And that really helped to kind of reshape a foundation of sorts and give me a little bit more of a um, strength. But I think I still had a lot of doubt in that. And I say that because of the people that I had around me, because of people that I dated I think I still didn't really believe in my own spiritual foundation that much. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I was still giving more credence to other, to other people and being a little too diplomatic and not being, and not really going like, no, this is something that's really important to me. And, you know, if you don't respect this, then we can't, you know, have a conversation because if this is important to me, then it needs to be important to you. You know what I mean? So right. that was kind of all a part of it. Wow. So so when you went to the, the London Academy of Dramatic 
dramatic mm-hmm. arts and music. Sorry, I can't remember exactly how to say that. <laughs> um, that's your grad school, right? So you you went there after you already went to a different education, a different collegiate education, right? Yes, I did. I um I went to college and then I and then I did that and that was kind of my grad school and, and that was actually like as a as an artist that was really where I learned things like just to backtrack a bit as an artist like I I got into acting at nine I saw somebody in this play a friend a classmate of mine and I was like I definitely want to do that and it was kind of like a, a inner knowing type of thing and so I auditioned for that program and I got in it was called the Young Actors Workshop in Richmond California. And I did that, but I still didn't think it was really a thing to be done. I kind of put it on the back burner, but my brother, who was a professional musician, really encouraged me to take acting seriously. So I decided to major in it in college. I don't feel like I went to the best place for that. I rarely name the institution, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but um, studying at Lambda was actually like, I learned everything because I actually had tutors as they call them who saw me and approached me and, you know, could teach me from where I was. For me, that was like a very huge experience, light bulb moment, because I was finally being seen as the artist that I always saw myself as. Where does Lambda come into this journey with um, you recovering from your mother? It's like all in the same like decade. It's all kind of interwoven together. You're getting educated and you're also trying to work through this deep emotional yeah. pain and kind of in a spiritual awakening. And also like I moved to New York, you know, attempting to have a career there and it, you know, wasn't going so great. And so, you know, I was really had a prescient thought at some point. I was like, you know, I'm in my twenties and I'm in New York and I'm only going to be in my twenties and in New York once. So I'm going to have fun and I'm not going to worry so much about what I don't have or my career. Or da, da, da. Like, I'm just going to like, work this job and maybe just have some fun for a while. So that's what I did for a while mm-hmm. until I ended up moving back to California. But it was it was helpful because when I moved to the Bay Area, which was home, there was a way in which my spiritual journey had never been put into practice, if that makes sense. Like things kind of opened up for me in a way that was so amazing and so so new that I was like, this is incredible. But that's because I was actually putting things into practice. I actually started to feel the wind at my back a bit. Um, And also at that time, you know, another sad story. um, My best friend uh, passed away in a car accident. Um, Oh my gosh. Yeah, I I moved um, back to the Bay. And, you know, this friend of mine is someone who I grew up with, right? So um, her name is QBD Dillon. We grew up together and we have known each other our whole lives. And, you know, we weren't close our whole lives. Like we was touching and, but a funny quick story, like I'm in college, I'm frustrated with this university that I don't name because it wasn't a good time. Anonymous, um, <laughs> anonymous university of books and learning. <laughs> Which everyone probably Google. It's not a big deal. But, <laughs> but I was, but I was there, and um, I had applied to Howard University because I was like, I need to get out of here. And she was the person who called people up to like convince them to come to the school. And so she saw me on her list, and she was like, "What?" And so. 
she calls and like we end up having this like, you know, hours long conversation catching up. And we both were actors at the time. And when I moved to New York, she was in DC and she would come up and we would hang out. And then when she moved to New York, we were running around New York together, you know, having a great time. And at some point she realized that comedy was her calling, which is so true. She was hilarious. And so she became a stand-up comedian and she had moved uh, to Sacramento and I had moved home and I called her. I'm like, girl, I'm home. Like we got to kick it. And she was like, oh, I have this show in Oakland. You have to come through. So I go to that show with my dad to see her. And it was an amazing show. And afterwards, you know, we, we hug and I'm, I'm like, we got to catch up, you know, I'll see you, you know, we got to catch up. And that evening she was in a solo car crash and passed away. And <sighs> that is, you know, when you talk about grief and loss, like that's a different loss, right? Like this is kind of what I was learning along my journey. Like the loss of a peer is like a whole different thing because you, it's like your counterpart. And, and for me, from my mind, I feel like I've moved back to Oakland and I'm just like, I'm a loser. I didn't make it in New York. I'm sleeping on a couch. Like I'm the worst ever. Like, what am I doing with my life? And here she is like opening for these big comedians and really making a name for herself. And, and then she's gone. And I was, I was not well after that. Um, it was devastating. And again, though, knowing that there's something about the largesse of a spirit, her network was so big. I know even as I spoke her name, there are people who are going to go, I knew her because that's how many people she touched. And there's something amazing in that. It, it's still... It's still a loss that was hard to make sense of because you're a peer and it's not that you think you're invincible, but you just think when someone has so much going for them that there's nothing that can stop them. Yeah. You know, this is how you feel. Wow, Sophia, there's a lot of just the most intense illuminations of how fragile life and the world is in your story. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I've had a I've had a pretty a pretty blessed life regarding that story. I've lost people close to me. I've lost some people very close to me, but to have two of these experiences with people that occupy such important places in your life, and like you already are addressed, two different angles on it too. Um, your mother and one of your peers that's one of your best friends that has you've known your whole life. Those people you, you envision getting to talk to that person when you're 75 and be like, can you remember when we were this? And that's taken from you the night you saw her. 
I mean, yeah. you, your hug was like on her clothes, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. insane, man. That's hard to yeah. take. That's, that makes me, that really hits. And I can't imagine losing one of my best friends like that. Um, it's, it's really hard. And, and especially, you know, when I say grew up together, like we used to take baths together. Like that's how sure, little we were. Right. <laughs> like so, right, Family friends too. I mean, like family friends. I remember when she came in and saw me and I had cut my hair, you know, black woman. I've wore perm for a very long time. My hair was straight mm. and I had cut it. And so I had this little Afro and she had been the person who was always getting on my case about, you know, wearing your hair natural. You got to wear it natural. She, you know, went through her journey. And so I was like excited to show her. So I'm like, hey. And I'll just never forget the look on her face because it wasn't, it was just subdued in a way that felt really funny to me. And I was like, that's interesting. It wasn't a big deal. It was just kind of a moment. And then I remember when she hugged my dad, she was like, you know, I love you and you've always been like a father to me. I just want you to know that. And I remember being, and she's all, she's told me that before, but I was like, oh, okay, like, cute, you know? And my dad, you know, he had cancer at the time, so he definitely was sick. Um, then after her passing, all those things kind of took a new life. That look on her face, you know, her amazing set, all her friends being there. It was absolutely accidental. It, there was no, it was absolutely accidental. I, I, I'm just, I say that to say that like, whether through illness, accident, or gun violence, or whatever it is, oftentimes, not every time, people who pass away know they're passing away. Wow. It just, I can't help but feel that. And I don't think that that happens every time. Um, it definitely didn't really happen with my dad. So, like, and it was also my experience. Like, everyone maybe didn't have that experience. But it also just lets me know that the connection was real, right? So even mm. if even if it has nothing to do with that happens to be the night that this person passes away tragically in this accident, it also just feels like this is a connection that's real. This is a connection that we have. This is a bond we share. Wow, Sophia. I'm deep, Nick, I'm deep. I knew that. I didn't <laughs> quite know... Some of the things that helped get you so deep. But uh, listen, let's just take a break here. And yeah. it'll be our last break. And then we'll, we'll talk about where we want to go uh, for our third segment. Sounds good. All right, we'll be back in a minute. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners and it means a lot to me because I read them and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everyone, we're back with Safia in our final segment. And 
As was intimated at the end of the last segment, her father was sick with cancer. And so why don't you tell me that story? Yeah, you know, one of the things I think that you go through or that happens when you lose people is that you really understand the preciousness of life and also how short life is. I'm not promised anything. What am I doing? Who am I spending my time with, you know? And my dad was diagnosed with cancer years before, you know, and had various times of being in remission. And, but um, about a year after my husband passed, um, my dad passed away as well. And Mm. it was, it was interesting because remember I said like, not everyone had, not every death is like super poignant, right? Like sometimes it just happens. And there was this way in which, you know, he was sick. Okay. The hospice person was there. Okay. But I had been down that road before with him. My dad was very clear that he was trying to stick around. You know, he, he said that a lot. He, he also talked a bit about, you know, fear of, of death and facing death. But there was a sense of like, ah, I don't know that this is it, you know? And it was, you know, bottom line, it was. Um, mm. And so my friend Kibidi's mother, her name was Nsenga. And Mama Nsenga, very close family friend, as I said, she was such a great, oh, such a formidable spirit, such an amazing woman. She literally was driving for Lyft and driving for Uber. She had mobility issues and all of these things, but she like would never stop. And she always said, I won't let grass grow on my feet. This is a woman who had lost her daughter and siblings and her parents and her spouse. And after my dad's passing, I remember being like, I don't know how to do this. Like, how do you do this? Because this is the one person in my life who I knew I could ask this question to, right? Mm. And she said, they're all different. Every single loss is different. So you can't keep expecting it to be like the last one. You can't keep expecting your grief to show up the way it did the last time because it's different. And you just have to go through it. It just has to be okay. And I just never forgot that that was so with me and it was hard losing my father because not only because of who he was but also you really lose a context for your life when you lose your parents you lose these people who like know you in a way that no one else knows you love you in a way that no one else loves you even if that love is kind of fucked up so even if you have a difficult parent and they pass away that's still a unique bond and relationship that you've lost. And the grief is going to be, is going to be different. And that's exactly what it was. Hmm. Okay. So where does that leave you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the blessing was that I chose to move back to Oakland, California a month before my friend was in this accident and passed away. I chose to move back a year before my dad passed away. 
and the gift of knowing that I had made the perfect decision for my life because I was able to be in his presence and soak up that energy for, you know, his final year. And I also started working a lot in theater. And so he was able to see a lot of the shows that I did and a lot of the work that I did. I I did find it interesting, though, that after he passed, I was kind of how I met you. I'm often cast as like, depending on the place, but I'm often cast as like the one black person in like a company. And so I'm often, you know, not necessarily doing something that is rooted in the black experience. And so Mm. my dad uh, owned an art gallery called Samuel's Gallery in Oakland, California. It was a gallery that was um, about art that was by and about the African diaspora. And he ran that gallery for many years. And he was a person who was always very steeped in Black culture and the Black experience and making us watch like these really old movies that were really, ugh, you know, <laughs> um, mm. or, you know, taking us to this museum or seeing this exhibit or you need to know this artist and you need to know this author or whatever that is. After his passing, I did a lot of work that was more rooted in the Black experience. Mm. And I always kind of felt like, wow, it'd be really cool if he had seen these things, you know, it was kind of, but I'm also so grateful that he gave me that foundational experience, which was something that at the time when you're a kid and your dad is talking about racism or, you know, a lot of things that you kind of don't want to think about or you want to think that the world's better than it is or whatnot. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that he was so clear about what this country is and who it's been to us and that he gave me all those experiences because they really helped me to see things in a context that is speaks directly to what is happening now. Mm. Yeah. Boy, I don't know what question to ask at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I mean, I want to talk. I want you to talk about, I want to listen to you talk about. Well, I didn't talk much about like my parents, essentially, right? Who they were or how they came to be who they were. My mother was from Nashville, Tennessee. So she grew up in the Jim Crow South. She met my father at Tennessee State University. He's from Springfield, Massachusetts. And it it was an interesting combination because I think my dad, because he was a northerner, was way more angry and fiery than my mom, right? Because my mom had just grown up with racism. Like Mm -hmm. you grow up in the South, it's just like, that's just what it is. It's not really this thing to constantly get upset over or this thing to kind of constantly try and overturn is in the fabric of the place that you're born and raised. And so it's an interesting combination because I I got to see this like very Southern perspective, which was just like, that's how it is. And it sucks. And this is what you have to do. And yes, that thing was messed up and, you know, very practical. And versus my father, who was like more of a cultural warrior, more like, how do we change the culture? How do we change perspectives and things like that, right? Mm. I mean, that sounds really valuable. That sounds really (laughs) impressionable. Um, It seems like what you are doing is you'd like to engage more directly in this moment 
you know, singing spirituals, singing these songs of oppression. And mm. I've had a few experiences now where I've engaged with friends of mine that are African-American and they have a lot to tell me and I haven't ever really talked to them about it before. And I think it's obviously overwhelming on some levels to really truly recognize, to just see video after video after video after video of this type of abuse <laughs> is, mm -hmm. is absolutely uh, overwhelming. Um, and to just kind of really begin to put myself as best I can in, in with an imagination work to understand the type of fury uh, and, and hurt that someone must be experiencing if they're black and they're seeing this happening again and again. And I guess the question is, how are you holding this moment? I think that so much of what what we're experiencing as a country and what black folks are going through is about, here's the thing. I, I think that we have ignored for so long what we have said. It is amazing to me that currently people actually know what Tulsa, Oklahoma means. They know what Black Wall Street was because in the past, if I were to say to someone who were to make, you know, some flippant remark or make some comment and say, well, actually, Black people did build their wealth and, you know, we had this thing called Black Wall Street, they would literally just look at me like I was a conspiracy theorist or that I was making it up, mm. like because it's not taught in history books and because no one knows. And if after the Holocaust, the Nazis just stayed right there in Germany and there were no trials and they just told the Jews to go back to wherever and they were just wandering around. I mean, they would essentially be where black people are now. They would be in a state of constant terror. And I think that there is just a breaking point of going like, we've actually been dealing with so much that we have just gotten used to dealing with. And it's enough. It's enough. And enough people around the world also see that it's enough, also see the injustices. You know, because I think about my parents' era or my grandparents' era where these exact same things were happening, where lynchings were happening, where killings were happening, and there, there was no video evidence and there was no accountability mm -hmm. for so long. And even when Rodney King was beat, those cops still got off. So we have to remember that like what we're asking for is so new to this country that everyone's like, what? You want a what? And it's like, as black people, we're like, do you have any idea how long we've been terrorized by police? You have no idea. And when we tell you, just like when I would tell you about Tulsa, it was literally like folklore. It was literally like, you must be just saying that. And that's really painful because I'm blessed that my parents made it a point to teach me my history, but that's also American history. That is a history that every single person should know. Mm -hmm. And this 
amazing German woman, Judith, used to work at my dad's gallery. She was so cool. And <laughs> I remember asking her about like World War II. And I was like, isn't that crazy that like that happened? And she was like, oh, yeah. And she was like, no, it's a, it was a tragedy. But, you know, we all learn about it in school and everyone knows exactly what happened. And we know that we don't want history to repeat itself. And she was so clear because they made a concerted effort to make sure that that didn't rise again. They like put in the work, you know, they gave reparations, they changed the education system. And America, anytime you bring up slavery, Americans for years have just constantly been like, well, it was a long time ago. Well, it was a long time ago. Well, it was a long time ago. And it's like, not that long ago when you think about the fact that my great grandfather was born into it. I don't mm-hmm. think that that's that long. It's not that long ago when you think about you know, if Martin Luther King hadn't been assassinated, he'd be Barbara Walters' age. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what is this thing about we just sweep it under the rug and we don't talk about it? And the education around it is so poor that people have no tools to talk about it. And it's why I think a lot of white folks have been so scared to ever approach it or every time it, it comes up, they get nervous because they don't want to say the wrong thing. But part of that is the fact that everything has kind of been in place to keep you that scared, especially a lot of liberal white people so scared that they don't approach it so that they have no vocabulary to actually speak to what has actually happened, to what is actually happening. And so it's a incredible, complicated, disorienting, sad, grieving moment to be a part of in the world. But I hope that it can be seen or one day will be seen as as a beautiful turning point, a beautiful marker of something new and better. And I see the way in which it feels to me like there's such an effort to squash it. You know, there's such an effort to like, we got to make this go away. We'll just donate a lot of money. We'll just do this. We'll make Juneteenth a holiday. We'll do these other things. And it's like systemic oppression cannot be uprooted with money. It just can't with only money. Only money isn't going to do it. And only money to foundations isn't going to do it. The system is broken. The system is what has Black folks dying of coronavirus more than anyone else. Like it's the, it's the system. And so the system has to change. And people don't want to change the system because it works for them, because it makes them a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going to happen. But all I know is that I can go out in the streets when I can get out in the streets. I can be safe and try and stay mentally healthy and alive and well. And I can contribute artistically whenever my voice feels or seems valuable and keep on keeping on. I said a lot. I know I said a lot. (laughs) No, well, I mean, to be honest with you, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, it's a moment like this where so typically I just don't like to – maybe at the beginning of when I started doing this show, I wanted to talk more. I definitely mm-hmm. got into it because I like talking to other people and listening to other people. Yeah. But I had more things I wanted to say. But once I said them, I was like, that's boring and it's more interesting to listen to other people anyway. Mm. And I feel like in this moment, though, I'm tempted to say something like, you know, there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of – Ah, uh, you know, yeah. There's a lot of um, totally. 
the deification of the country, the idea that this is God's land and the God-given nature of this land's freedom, and don't sully this with this ugly past. And so some people huh. live in the racism and some people just don't want to acknowledge it if they have the privileged luxury of being able to just ignore it. I think speaking for myself, it's interesting. I, I studied for a semester in the Dominican Republic and there's really mm. terrible racism on the island of Hispaniola between the Dominicans and the Haitians. Yes, I've been there. Oh, you have? Yes, totally. <laughs> so then you know what I'm talking about. But what's interesting about it is that it's like easier to for me to be involved in conversations about that country's racism with people in that country than it is with black Americans. Right. <laughs> or it has it's, been. Because it's not it, I would say it's more because I think that uh, I grew up not understanding what my place was in, yes. in this conversation. And I didn't know what my responsibilities were. I didn't know, you know, you grow up with that thing. Well, like it wasn't me that, mm -hmm. you know, that type of language is, is around. And you already spoke to this, but it's no one knows, no one's teaching you how to talk about it. And uh, I didn't grow up in a place where, we were, um, I think mostly people just didn't want to acknowledge it. And if people, if they were being bigots, they were doing it when they thought they wouldn't get seen, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you recognize this difference that's the elephant in, in the room of this country, but you don't talk to people enough about it. You just don't ask them how they're really fucking feeling, how they're doing. Well, Are you being treated well? Is someone not treating you well around <laughs> me? Can I can I help? <laughs> you know, yeah. like people, you know, you have black friends, but you don't talk about it. And yeah. I didn't have that many black friends because I grew up in a white suburb of Omaha, Nebraska. And so, yeah. you know, I think at this moment too, I become hyper-conscious of this being like a, you know, a confessional. No, I mean, I, I feel like it's important to talk about that because... I feel like that is has always been the other side of this coin. And exactly in the way that um, I talk about the German woman, Judith, who worked for my father, who had this knowledge of her history, it's like, that is exactly what you didn't get the opportunity to have, right? So you don't get to stand in whiteness in a way and go, okay, I understand what the construct of whiteness is and I understand how it was used, weaponized in this country and how it continues to be. And now I understand how to move forward. And that's the difference. And so therefore it it's constantly a, a space of, of shame and, and I don't want to talk about it. And can we move on? Because it's uncomfortable. But I think that also the ability to even say that I'm not going to pay attention to this movement that is happening or I'm not going to be yeah, I'm not going to pay attention to it is a result of privilege, right? Oh, it's sure. a result of like, it's a result of like, well, I don't actually have to. And it's like, that's literally, you know, the definition of what's kind of always happened. And so, you know, I have tons of white friends and, you know, I've always been the person who, if it comes up, I say something, but how often does it come up? Right. Mm -hmm. And how often is someone going to bring it up? 
And also every time it comes up, you're giving a history lesson, like every single time. I've never not been able to have a conversation about race where I have to go, well, then there was this, well, then this, and then this happened. And then even the fact that I have to give all of that background does such a disservice because it's like, you should come to the table with that. And it's frustrating because I feel like the separate realities that we've lived in and been a part of have existed for so long. And it's just now that a lot of people are saying, wait, I want to be aware of this reality that I thought that I was living in. I want to be aware of what's happening on the other side of that. But to be aware is 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 going to be a journey. It's not, it, it's definitely not a sprint. And, you know, I'll tell the story quickly of this one time I, I, I unfortunately forget which shooting this was after, but this was some years ago. And I was like, you know, you have to understand when Black Lives Matter started, no one was on board. You know, people were, it was very, you know, taboo for a lot of people to say, and everyone was very scared of it. And, you know, you said it to people and, you know, I had this several conversations about that. And I remember being in this restaurant, I was just like in a state and I just needed to like have a meal out and like feel the outness of being out. But I didn't particularly want to talk to anyone, but this guy sat down next to me and then um, I wasn't particularly having, trying to have a conversation, but we ended up in a conversation <laughs> and, and it was, I didn't want to have a conversation because I am black and he was white. And I was like, I don't want to try and pretend as if I'm not in pain right now. I don't feel like it. And if I express to you my pain, you won't understand it because it doesn't affect your life directly. Right. That's my thinking. But actually this guy ended up being in a family where they had adopted, he grew up with a a brother who was black because through adoption. Mm. And he told me this story about how his brother kind of separated himself a bit from the family because he felt the difference and he needed to, again, the exhaustion of explaining like, this is what it means to be black. And this is why I'm afraid of the cops. And he kind of had pulled away for a while and his brother that I was sitting next to at this sushi spot, you know, said to him, listen, if you aren't a part of my life and my kid's life, then we can't learn about what it is to be black in this country. And so I want you to be a part of my life. I love you. And I know that this is difficult, but you're the perfect person because you're their uncle and they love you. And it, it changed their relationship, you know, just by him acknowledging that. Right. Mm -hmm. Because as black people, we can have a relationship for a white person for a very long time and like barely or never talk about race because we know how hard it is for you guys to deal with it. I know. It's and like, so- it's a really ridiculous uh, <laughs> burden that you have. <laughs> right? It's crazy. But I, that was a really important moment for me because at the time I was like, wow, that just gave me a lot of hope in the world. Just to know that like, that relationship exists in the world gives me, it just gives me a little bit of hope. It gives me a little bit of something. Right. But then that's, you know, marred the next day by the next killing, you know, or the next week by the next injustice. And so this is just a fight we've been in for a very long time. And I definitely see my approach to what's happening and my thoughts about what's happening through the direct lens of my father, because the cultural context and the historical context for what is happening is lost on a lot of people. And I I think that it's important that everyone get really uncomfortable. 
like everybody because there's a reason why they've kept us comfortable for so long because they don't want to rock the boat. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't want us to know what we know now. <laughs> yeah. because, you know, because then it changes everything. Then we start demanding that the textbooks be a certain way. Then we start demanding that the, we defund the police. Like then we start demanding things that like people aren't ready for us to demand of them. And everyone starts doing it, you know? So I love that we're here. I just, I love that it's happening. Um, it's super painful. Yeah. I but, guess this is what it takes. Yeah. Well, but there was no way that this was going to happen without a lot of pain. And you, you already knew that a lot of us didn't quite maybe get it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that you didn't already intimate or say expressly that like that you want white people or people that are unaware of this topic to know about when they're talking with you? I mean, it's just a question. It's like, it's like asking about something that you've never been asked before. Right. Mm. Like, I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I wish I knew, but it's like, I've never been asked that question before. And I have no idea because we've never been where we are and we have no idea. There's no roadmap here. Right. Mm. And I think it's, I think it's kind of important for us to just embrace that and forge ahead. You know, I think, I think that there are people who maybe have more credentials than myself who would know exactly what to ask of of y'all. But I mean, I don't have any context for that. Right. Like, I mean, I probably had a white friend ask me that before and been like, what? I don't, what do you mean? I don't know. What I do know is I want to feel um I want to feel not oppressed. <laughs> mm. I I want to feel freer. I want to feel freer in the sense that like I don't have to explain everything nor do I have to ignore parts of who I am because people can't take it. Like I, I want to feel freer. And I'm not saying that that's something that I do often. In fact, I do it less and less and less, but I just know that there are ways in which I want to feel like me going for this job has nothing to do with what I look look like. It has nothing to do with my race. Mm. You know, I want to know that like my not getting this job had nothing to do with that. I want to know that so intimately that I never have to doubt it. I, I you know, when you audition for Juilliard in the music program, they do blind auditions, which is something that they had to start implementing because things were skewing white and male. And once they did that, they had a very diverse you know, group of people because you can't see the person who's playing. It's just about their playing. Mm. And that may be a cheeky example, but it's like, I just want to feel, and I'm not suggesting that, but I just want to feel as though like my worth and who I am are like enough in the world and that every single other person feels that way too. And we just don't have to feel so bogged down. I mean, black will always be a culture. It will, it will always be a culture that is is distinct from white culture just because it, it's a culture, right? Um, but we so forget that white people were not always a monolith. Like, 
there were the Italians and the Jews and the Irish and the mm -hmm. wasps. And those were very different groups. And if you were an Italian, if your wasp daughter was with an Italian dude, that was not okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not going to equate the um, bigotry that my great-grandparents suffered, but they absolutely were absolutely. not given certain things, not allowed to have certain jobs. They were yeah. called, you know, names that were based in race. It's not yep. the same because those people were integrated so much quick, so much right. more quickly, that's rapidly. But and that's it. Not the same because eventually it all became white. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it not the same, right? It's right. not the same because it's like, eventually everyone was able to just assimilate into whiteness and claim that, and then what do they? What do you do? You kind of put it on whoever the next group is, right? I think it's important for people to just remember and understand that yeah. because you know it's something that we all should know. Safia, you gave me so much in this conversation. I uh, truly, as you and I have laughed about off mic, I I've been a little unaware of which way to go, partly I think because of what you're speaking about is one, I, I'm i naive about a couple of things. One is about the amount of death that you've experienced in your life. And I have really relished in some ways hearing you speak about it because it's an opportunity for me to learn. And I feel like something I knew I was going to get from you but didn't quite understand to what length was the way you'd speak about this moment after George Floyd's murder with what's going on in the country as we talk about race more openly. And I really, I really appreciate you just sitting down and talking to me about it, helping me understand. And I think also helping me understand that us fumbling around trying to find how to talk about it is the way to talk about it. And that you know, that there are maybe no exact clear answers for most of us, but that in the talking about it, we may find something. And I appreciate you helping me learn, I suppose, is, is the best way I can say that. Well, thank you for having me. I am a fan of this show, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, well, thank you. And it was helpful for me to hear myself talk about my journey through spirituality and loss in the moment that we're in, it was helpful for me to understand how I got here. So yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. I'm definitely going to journal about it tonight. Well, that's lovely to hear. And, um, don't hang up right now because, uh, I'll say goodbye to you after I say goodbye to the sure. show, but, uh, thank you again for being here and thank you all for listening. This is where I need to close the show. Yeah. What the fuck am I going to say? Hold on. <laughs> <laughs>